0: SECTION THREE OF SOLARIO THE TAYLOR. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. SOLARIO THE TAYLOR BY WILLIAM BOWEN THE SECOND NIGHT ALB THE UNICORN PART 2 THE OLD MAN OF ICE the Laughing Nymph, and the Great Horned Owl. I will tell you, the sorcerer went on, what those three black hairs are. The one on the left side of your head is the old man of ice who lives in the great cave near the top of a thunder mountain in this very island. The one on the right side of your head is the Laughing Nymph, who lives in the three-spire rock on the further shore of the great sea. The one in the middle of your head is the great horned owl, whose feathers are scales so hard that no spear can pierce them, and who lives at the top of the cliff at the far side of the half-moon pasture of Corby. You must not touch the old man of ice. You must not laugh with a laughing nymph. AND YOU MUST NOT SPEAK WHEN YOU SEE THE GREAT HORNED OWL. I DON'T LIKE THIS VERY MUCH, SAID THE PRINCESS. "Nonsense, MY DEAR, SAID I. IT SOUNDS VERY EXCITING. DO YOU KNOW WHAT A BURNING GLASS IS, WENT ON THE SORCERER. YES, SAID I. HE WENT TO A CHEST BESIDE THE WALL, AND TOOK FROM IT A SMALL, ROUND, THICK PIECE OF GLASS, AND PLACED IT IN MY LEFT HAND. There is only one thing that can destroy the old man of ice, and that is a hot beam from the sun. Before you go into his cave, hold this burning glass with your left hand up to the sun. The rays it catches will remain in it for seven minutes, and no longer. And if you can then, within those seven minutes, holding the glass in your left hand, fix those rays on the old man of ice, he will be destroyed and you will get rid of the black hair on the left side of your head he went to his chest again and returning put into my left hand a sharp brass pin some three inches in length with this pin he said you must make the laughing nymph weep you must plunge it with your left hand deep into her left arm and while she is weeping you must flee away and thus you will get rid of the black hair on the right side of your head but if you laugh with her or remain until she stops weeping you will never return he took from his spinning-wheel a thread some yard and a half long and holding it in his teeth made fast a large loop at one end he then placed the thread in my left hand this loop he said YOU MUST THROW OVER THE HEAD OF THE GREAT HORNED OWL WITH YOUR LEFT HAND. WHEN YOU HAVE DONE SO, HE WILL FOLLOW YOU. YOU MUST LEAD HIM INTO THE RIVER TARN, AND HOLD HIM THERE UNTIL HE DROWNS, AND THUS YOU WILL GET RID OF THE BLACK HAIR IN THE MIDDLE OF YOUR HEAD, AND BE CURED FOREVER. BUT THE OWL, THOUGH HE IS BLIND BY DAY, HAS VERY SHARP EARS. YOU MUST NOT LET HIM HEAR YOUR VOICE. THE BURNING GLASS, THE BRASS PIN, AND THE LOOP OF THREAD. HE THEN GAVE ME THE MOST MINUTE DIRECTIONS HOW TO REACH THE GREAT CAVE, THE THREE-SPIRE ROCK, AND THE HALF-MOON PASTURE OF CORBY, AND I THEREUPON PLACED IN MY POCKET THE BURNING GLASS, THE PIN, AND THE THREAD, AND DREW THE PRINCESS AFTER ME TO THE DOOR AND DOWN TO MY ROOM, WHERE I IMMEDIATELY BEGAN MY PREPARATIONS FOR DEPARTURE. THAT NIGHT I LEFT. The princess wept on my shoulder, but I laughed gaily, and ridiculed her fears. "'Don't you feel sorry,' she said, "'to leave me?' "'Come, dearest,' I said. "'You mustn't begrudge me a little adventure. Don't be selfish.' She straightened herself up. "'Yes,' she said. "'I think you had better go.' I did not understand this sudden change, but I kissed her, and said, "'Did you pack my white leather suit?' Yes, it is in the saddle-bag and extra shoes. Be sure to change if you get your feet wet. I kissed my hand to her from the saddle and gave my horse the rein. I was off upon my adventure at the end of two days. I came to the village which lies at the foot of Thunder Mountain. It was a bright day, and the sun was hot as I trotted briskly through the village street. A child of three or four years ran from the door of a house directly to the front of my horse and under its feet and in an instant the horse had knocked him down and trampled over his body i looked round and heard the child cry out in pain but i was intent on what lay before me and too happy in my new career to be bothered with trifles and i sped on rapidly and was soon well up the mountainside. i came to a place among the rocks and bushes where there was no longer any trail and there i tied my horse and left him i kept in view as i climbed higher and higher a great gray rock "'shaped like a dome and as big as a house, "'which projected from the very top of the mountain. "'Under this rock, as I knew, lay the cave of the Man of Ice. "'The higher I climbed, the steeper grew the ascent. "'Trees became fewer, and at length there were none. "'I looked abroad and saw, beyond the intervening mountains, "'the great sea afar off, wrinkling in the sunshine. "'I came at last to a point so high "'that I was quite dizzy when I looked down.' around me were only boulders there were not even any bushes nor birds nor squirrels nothing but rocks and sunshine he hears thunder in a clear sky i stopped suddenly and listened a distant rumble of thunder came from the top of the mountain i was as i may say thunderstruck for there was not a cloud in the sky as i mounted higher the rolling of thunder became louder and louder and when I reached, as I did at last after hours of toil, the dome-shaped rock at the top, thunder crashed all about me with a deafening roar, although the sky remained as clear as before. I halted at the foot of the great rock, and commenced the task of finding the entrance to the cave. The surface of the rock seemed quite unbroken, but I found at last, near the ground, a single crack about an inch in width. I inserted my fingers, but I could not budge it, AND REMEMBERING THE DIRECTIONS GIVEN ME BY THE SORCERER, I CRIED OUT, IN THE NAME OF THE SUN, I COMMAND YOU, OPEN. THE ROCK BENEATH THE CRACK BEGAN TO MOVE, AND BEFORE MY ASTONISHED EYES IT FELL SLOWLY INWARD, LEAVING A GAPING HOLE, JUST WIDE ENOUGH TO ADMIT MY BODY. I DID NOT DELAY. I TOOK THE BURNING GLASS FROM MY POCKET AND HELD IT UP IN MY LEFT HAND TO THE SUN, AND WHEN I THOUGHT IT WELL FILLED WITH THE SUN'S RAYS, I CRAWLED IN THROUGH THE HOLE. When I was inside, the opening closed behind me, and I was in utter darkness. It was very cold, and the noise of thunder was louder than before. I was surprised to see, at a little distance, a single spot of light, which flickered here and there as I crept on, but I soon observed that it came from the burning glass which I was still holding in my left hand. He goes down into the cave in Thunder Mountain. I was aware that I was going downward. The further I went, the louder became the thunder. I must have descended thus for a minute or two when a gust of cold air swept my face, and finding the floor level, I stood up. The sound of thunder was now deafening beyond anything I had yet heard. As I stood there, a great mass of what appeared to be ice, larger than my body, rolled past me and disappeared in the darkness. I jumped aside and walked on. In another moment, a mass of ice like the first fell at my side and rolled away. A rush of the bitterest cold air accompanied it, and as it struck the ground, a crash of thunder shook the place, and its sound, as it rolled away into the dark, was the sound of thunder rumbling afar off among the mountains. I now understood the origin of the thunder I had heard in the clear sunlight outside. I pointed my burning glass upward, and I was able to make out, dimly in the ceiling, great numbers of these bodies of ice hanging there like stalactites, but rounded at the bottom and very slender at the top so that they appeared to hang by little more than the thread. As I stumbled on, one after another of these fell to the ground with a crash and rolled away with decreasing rumble. There was no telling when one of them might fall on me, and I could only trust to luck. There was nothing to do but to get forward as quickly as possible. Time was flying, and even if I should escape these thunderstones, I had only three or four minutes of my seven left. I darted blindly on, and the ice came crashing about me faster and faster until i thought my head would split with the noise once or twice i was nearly struck how i escaped i do not know for it became certain that the thunderstones were dropping closer and closer about me as if they were trying to halt me and all the time the cold was becoming so bitter that my feet and legs were already numb i suddenly found myself walking on a slippery film of ice and at that moment i knew that i had cleared the chamber of thunder and had left that danger behind me the noise abated to a distant rumbling The ice on which I walked was very thin, and at every step it crackled under me, and I could just make out the sound of the rushing beneath it of a torrent of water. I stepped lightly and quickly, seeing nothing but the blackness of night before me. I ran. The ice swayed and crackled and ripped, and just as it gave way under me and my foot plunged in the freezing water, I found myself again on the solid floor of the cavern and ran with all my might. I could see nothing of walls or ceiling. I was lost in the dark. In another moment I was aware of a kind of vague paleness afar off before me, and I ran in that direction. As I did so, the paleness, whatever it was, moved swiftly to the right, and I changed my course accordingly. It then moved to the left, and as fast as I changed my course it moved also. Evidently it was trying to avoid me. I gained on it, and it seemed then to try to pass me on one side and get in my rear, but I was too quick for it, and came up with it before it had quite passed me. I CAME WITHIN TEN FEET OF IT AND SAW WHAT IT WAS. HE PURSUES THE MAN OF ICE WITH THE BURNING GLASS. IT WAS THE MAN OF ICE. HE WAS RUNNING ABOUT LIKE A CORNERED RAT, A PERFECTLY FORMED OLD MAN, HIS FACE AND HEAD HAIRLESS, AND HIS WHOLE BODY OF SOLID ICE. HE RAN JERKILY. I COULD HEAR HIS JOINTS CRACKLE AS HE RAN, AND HE WAS ALMOST TRANSPARENT AND OF A PALE GREENISH BRIGHTNESS. HIS FINGERS WERE STIFF AND POINTED LIKE ICICLES, "'and his eyes were like little white marbles. "'When he found that he could not pass me, "'he ran back into the cave, "'but we were evidently near its rear wall, "'and in a moment he was darting back and forth "'against this wall for all the world like a cornered rat. "'I kept after him, "'and flashing the burning glass constantly in his direction "'forced him at last into a corner. "'He turned upon me there "'and stretched out his long, stiff fingers "'and made as if to spring upon me. "'I knew that if he should touch me I should be lost. "'It must be now or never.' I turned the burning glass full upon him, and before he could spring, its little spot of light flickered upon the center of his breast. The change which came over him nearly caused me to drop the glass. The top of his head melted away before my eyes and dripped down over his ears. His eyes, his nose, his cheeks, his chin, turned one after another to water and flowed down over his shoulders. And as I moved the beam of sunlight lower and lower, he slowly melted away from shoulder to foot and was no more than a wet spot. On the floor. He commences to make his escape from the cave. I turned swiftly to make my way out of the cave. As I did so, the light from my burning glass went out, and the cave was suddenly flooded with pure sunlight, from what source I could not make out. I was in a vast, vaulted chamber, which I did not remain to examine. I sped to a wide opening which I saw before me, and passing through it, came to the side of a little brook bordered with golden yellow flowers. I waded across the brook its water was as warm as milk on the other side i entered the thunder chamber now well lit with sunshine and there i paused in amazement it was in perfect silence the air was mild and balmy in place of the terrible stones of ice thick green vines clung to the ceiling i gave a shout of joy and ran to a little opening which i saw in the farther side through this i crawled and on my hands and knees ascended the passage down which i had first come AND ARRIVED AT THE ENTRANCE OF THE CAVE, NOW CLOSED. OPEN! I SHOUTED. IN THE NAME OF THE SUN, I COMMAND YOU, OPEN! THE ROCK FELL OUTWARD, AND I CRAWLED THROUGH INTO THE LIGHT OF DAY. I HAD GONE QUITE A MILE DOWN THE mountainside BEFORE I REALIZED THAT THERE WAS NO SOUND OF THUNDER. I LOOKED UP AT THE TOP OF THE MOUNTAIN AND PAUSED TO LISTEN. ALL WAS SILENT, SUNNY, AND PEACEFUL. I HAD ACCOMPLISHED MY FIRST ADVENTURE WITH COMPLETE SUCCESS. When I reached the village at the foot of the mountain, my first thought was of the child whom my horse had injured earlier in the day. I dismounted, and after a few moments' inquiry, found where he lived. I was admitted to the house by his mother, who led me to an inner room, where I beheld on a chair by a window an unusually charming little fellow, with his left arm in a splint. I sat down before him and took him on my lap, and held him carefully in my arms. He took to me at once, and I was pleased to feel as his warm little body pressed close to me, a decided warmth crept slowly and gently into my own heart. I forced the mother, who was poor, to accept from me the only amends I could make, a purse of gold from my belt, bestowed with a warm shake of the hand. As I said goodbye, I glanced at the mirror which hung upon the wall. I went up to it, and looked more intently. The black hair which had been on the left side of my head was gone. I pressed on the same night, and arrived in due time at the town of Ventimere, on the shore of the great sea. I bought a boat, not too large to be handled by a single man, and rigged with a single sail of a charming orange color, somewhat patched with blue. Like all the islanders, I knew well how to manage a boat, and I could see that my little bark was entirely seaworthy. I provisioned her for a long voyage, being mindful, of course, of the return. With a light and favorable wind above, and an ebbing tide, I set sail. HE SAILS ACROSS THE GREAT SEA. As I cleared the bay and encountered the long, smooth roll of the great sea, I thought, sitting with my hand on the tiller, of the dear princess who I had left behind me. I remembered that I had charged her with selfishness, and I began to doubt whether I had been altogether just. For the first time within my memory, I felt a little uneasy on the subject of my own conduct. However, this shadow lasted only a moment, I sang as I sailed. The weather was superb, and the sea, under moderate winds, never rose above a long and quiet swell. During the entire voyage, there was nothing more exciting than an occasional gull on easy wing circling about the peak of my mast, and the flying fish now and then skimming low across the surface of the sea. As I neared the far shore of the great sea, the green of the water became a deep indigo and I could not but rejoice in the lovely effect amidst that expanse of rich color of the orange of my sail. I had held the course prescribed by the sorcerer, and I knew that I should pick up the three-spire rock on sighting land. It came to pass as I expected. My faithful boat slipped, early of a luminous evening, into the placid waters of a little bay. On either hand a promontory of noble height jutted out into the sea, and from the shallow water near the shore, against the innermost curve of the beach, rose, in three pinnacles, a great black rock, washed by a gentle and surfless tide, and towering above as high as the masts of the ship, the three-spire rock beyond a doubt. I ran my boat almost up to the beach, the tide being at flood, and anchored there. I put on my fine white leather suit, as being suitable for the visit I had now to make, and waded ashore with a line, which for further security I made fast to a log partly embedded in the sand. I then climbed upon the shoreward side of the three-spire rock, and began my search for the Laughing Nymph. I examined every inch of that side of the rock as far as I could climb, without finding any sign of an opening. I made my way slowly around the rock to the seaward side, examining it carefully as I went, still without success. I reached the outer side of the rock in despair. The light of day was fast waning, and I would soon be forced to give up my search for the night. The water, which swelled and receded noiselessly about the rock, became black and unfriendly. It was very lonesome. Not a gull, nor curlew, nor sandpiper could be seen anywhere. The place was too silent altogether. I pressed along the seaward face of the rock. Before me, at a little distance, the tide had filled to the brim a sort of bowl in the rock, open toward the bay. "'in which the water stood some five or six feet deep. "'I came to this bowl and paused to select the best way for clambering round it. "'I looked down into the still water which filled it, "'and saw there a sight which almost made my heart stop beating. "'He finds a child in a pool of the rock. "'Floating there was the body of a drowned child. "'I gave a cry of pity and stooped down to look at him. "'It was a naked boy of some two years, exceedingly beautiful.' I stooped lower and gazed into his upturned face. It was the face of my own child. It could not be. I had myself seen him with my own eyes, far from here in his mother's arms many months ago. And yet, the longer I gazed upon him, the more certainly I knew that it was my own child. I could not be deceived. I leaned down closer and put my arms under him and drew him up and folded him to my breast. He was cold and wet but beautiful beyond anything I had ever dreamed of him. I stood up, and held his cheek against my own. It seemed to me I had never known until this moment how dear he had been to me. I leaned, almost fainting, against the face of the rock, and rested his fair round body in my arm for a moment against a smooth shelf in the wall. His little shoulder lightly touched the rock, and where it touched, a slight depression began to appear, as if the rock had been a cushion. As I looked, the depression grew deeper and wider. It deepened and widened until it became a hollow vault in which I could see nothing but darkness. Holding the fair boy close to my breast, I stepped into the dark vault and walked carefully forward toward the interior of the rock. In a moment the passage made a turn to the right and I found myself in a brightly lighted room with a peaked ceiling, very lofty, whose floor and walls were all of of mother-of-pearl, In sconces upon the walls were hundreds of burning candles, and divans and chairs covered with the richest silks were ranged beneath them. A door in the opposite wall stood open, and I entered through this another room of the same kind, with peaked ceiling, candles, mother-of-pearl, and all. As I stood in this room I heard the tinkling of a musical instrument and the singing of a voice. A door stood open opposite me as before, and through this I entered a third room, precisely like the others, and stopped in amazement. There, on a divan against the wall, under a blaze of candles, sat my wife. THE LAUGHING Nymph IN THE THREE-SPIRED ROCK She was singing gaily and accompanying her song upon a lute. When she saw me, she laughed merrily and bade me sit down beside her. I remained standing where I was, doubting whether I had lost my senses and hugging the beautiful child to my breast. There was no mistake. It was my wife, indeed, I forgot for the moment the strangeness of the encounter and went to her and held out the child see i cried have done with laughing your child he is drowned i have brought him to you see she looked at me with such merriment in her face as i had never seen there before she laughed again and again i thought she would never have done laughing i was petrified with horror stop i cried i must make you understand me It is your child. Do you understand? Can you look at him and laugh? For shame, for shame. She calmed her laughter somewhat. Why, what is there in that, she said, to make me weep? If you only knew how ridiculous you look. Oh, dear. And she went off into a peal of laughter gayer than before. Take him, I said. Look down at that little face and smile again if you dare. And I laid him in her lap. She took him up carelessly and placed him out of her way on the divan. "'Really?' she said. "'You mustn't expect to disturb me with these things. I was singing a lovely new song when you came in. Listen!' And she took the lute in her hands and began to sing a stave of her song. I felt a wave of anger rise within me. I rushed upon her blindly and tore the lute from her hands and dashed it on the floor. I seized her shoulders and shook her violently, and the more violently I shook her, the more she laughed.' i bethought me of the pin which lay in my pocket and at the same time there flashed into my mind what the sorcerer had said about the laughing nymph i had quite forgotten them both i snatched the pin forth from my pocket with my left hand and closing my eyes plunged it deep into the left arm of the laughing nymph she did not scream with pain but her laughter instantly ceased she looked at me with surprise as if she were now seeing me for the first time an expression of reproachful sorrow came over her face Tears started into her eyes and rolled down her cheeks, and suddenly she buried her face in her hands and wept bitterly. She arose and threw herself on her knees beside the child and called to him wildly, sobbing as if her heart would break. I looked on for a moment with my brain in a whirl. A strong impulse of love and pity moved me to put my arm around her and comfort her, but I restrained myself, and in that moment I saw what it all meant. I left the laughing nymph still weeping beside the child and fled. The second black hair is gone. Outside, on the beach, under the stars, I collected my disordered wits. I went to the little cabin in my boat and gazed at myself in the mirror which hung upon its wall. My eyes were unnaturally large and hollow, my cheeks were pale, and the black hair which had been on the right side of my head was gone. I gathered together such provisions as I could carry, and seeing that the boat was well secured, I departed upon my third and last adventure. Many days I traveled. The sorcerer had given me my course with much particularity, and there was no question of losing my way. My thoughts were sad company, and yet I felt a kind of elation. I began to look back on myself with horror and to remember the sweetness of my princess with admiration and love. One morning I ascended a long wooded hill and stood upon its top. Below me, At no great distance lay a river, curved at this point outward like a crescent. On its farther side stretched a field some two miles deep, grown high with grass and flowers, and bounded at its rear by a high cliff whose walls at either end met the river, enclosing the field so that its shape, between them and the river, was roughly that of a half-moon. It was, without a doubt, the pasture of Corby beside the river Tarn. The time for my last adventure had arrived. I descended rapidly to the river first leaving my pack in a safe place and waded across the stream it came to my shoulders but i had no difficulty in reaching the other side i pressed forward through the tall grass to the foot of the cliff i walked along its base until i found above me on its face somewhat higher than my reach a circle of white stones and by this i knew that it was this point that i must climb the ascent was excessively difficult i mounted with great pain to a point so high that i no longer dared look below i fixed my eyes on each crevasse and cranny as they appeared above me and tried to think of nothing but my next step upward i was nearing the top i looked up and saw directly overhead a great boulder which projected from the face of the cliff evidently at its very summit this was the boulder of which the sorcerer had spoken as the abode of the great horned owl a dozen more painful steps brought me to the underside of the boulder i clung to the cliff with both hands and without a sound, crept along its face until I was out from under the boulder on its left side, and then climbed noiselessly upward until I stood beside the boulder so as to look across its top. There I saw, at my right, the object of my search. The great horned owl stands ready for the loop of thread. The great horned owl was standing motionless, his wide eyes staring across the valley of the tarn, I was thankful that in the bright light of the sun he was blind he did not turn his head in my direction and he was evidently unaware of my presence his feathers as i could see were flakes or scales of some shining metal he looked harmless enough and i felt myself full of confidence the hand which was nearest to him was my right holding on to the cliff with my left i took from my pocket with my right the thread which the sorcerer had given me and cleared the loop so that I could drop it over the creature's head without tangling. I leaned across the boulder toward him, keeping very quiet, and brought my right hand with the loop so close to him that I could have touched him. With that hand I held the loop above his head and began to lower it. It came down closer and closer. It reached the top of his head. I held my breath. My eyes were fixed on his. I lowered the loop another inch or two until it came to his curved beak without touching him. "'and I was about to drop it over his neck. "'When suddenly he flapped his wings "'and fluttered his feathers all together "'and all the little metal plates on his body "'striking one another "'gave off a rattling discharge of sharp reports "'so violent that I thought the cliff "'was being blown to pieces. "'I jumped with fright "'and scarcely refrained from uttering a cry, "'but I held my tongue "'and dropped the loop around his neck. "'Instantly the metal feathers were still "'and the noise ceased, "'and the owl turned his head slowly toward me, and stared right into my face. And as he gazed at me, all at once it came to me that I had dropped the noose with my right hand instead of my left. I was aghast at my mistake. I tugged at the thread frantically, but the owl did not budge. I began to grow dizzy. My arm tingled and grew numb. Everything turned black before my eyes. I could not remember where I was. I swayed and lost my balance. I felt myself falling. I clutched wildly for support, but touched nothing. I felt myself falling through space, falling, falling as a person falls in a dream for hours as it seemed sick and dizzy. Only once did I touch anything, and then I felt in my knee a sharp pain and was conscious that I was bleeding from a cut, and then I knew no more. When I came to myself, I was standing at the foot of the cliff where I had commenced my ascent. I looked upward, and wondering that I was alive after such a fall, as my eye traveled downward and rested on the circle of white stones above me, I noticed in their center a little splotch of blood, evidently from my knee where it had been cut in my fall. And as I continued to look, the splotch grew into a blood-red flower waving on a long stem. I felt a strange desire to take the flower in my teeth and tear it. All sees in the River, the Reflection of a Unicorn I wondered whether anything had happened to the hair in the middle of my head. I went to the river and looked down at myself in a clear pool near the bank. I was surprised to see there the reflection of a small white horse's head. I turned around to see the animal which must have been looking over my shoulder. No animal was there. I could not understand it. I looked again at the surface of the water. The same head met my gaze, a small white horse's head, and in the center of it a sharp white horn. I looked behind me again, and again into the river. "'I stood in the water, "'and saw there the full image "'of the little white horse. "'It was myself. "'Thus,' said the little man, "'sitting in the half-moon pasture of Corby "'by the river Tarn, "'you know my story. "'I have kept count of the days "'since my enchantment, "'and they now amount to two years, "'the age of my little son "'when he was drowned. "'You have taken from me "'the third black hair, "'and I shall now fly back "'to my beloved princess, "'cured of the curse "'of perpetual happiness,' TO SPEND WITH HER THE REMAINDER OF MY DAYS IN BLESSED LIGHT AND SHADOW, PEACE AND STORM, LAUGHTER AND TEARS. "'I wonder,' said Beaujean thoughtfully, after a moment's silence, "'who the old man was who gave him the curse in the first place. "'Did Alp tell you,' said Bodkin, "'who the old man was?' "'No,' said Solario. "'I don't believe he ever knew. "'But I happen to know myself.' because it was revealed to me in the course of the story, which was told me by— Tell us! Tell us! cried the two boys. No, said Solario, it is much too late, and I must now, if you will permit me, bid you good-night. End of Section 3 Recording by Todd